0: So you always have to cheat your way in a little bit um, and, and just count on believing that you can deliver certain things, but coming completely empty handed, this was simply not our style. Starting a company, well, that's easy. Selling your company, however,
1: that's a different story. In the big exit show by Peak, we lift the curtain of secrecy of selling ambitious scale-ups by talking to successful founders who have been in this roller coaster. My name is Remy Gilling. And I'm Jan Famil. And in this episode, we are in Berlin to talk to Dr. Giro Decker. Gero is one of the founders of Signavio, a specialist in business process automation with offices in 12 countries. The company was recently sold after 12 years to technology giant SAP. And we will talk to a true entrepreneur about scaling in a hyper-competitive market, getting customers like Siemens, Bosch and Coca-Cola on board and making an exit after being independent for so many years. Gero, thanks so much for having us. It's a pleasure to
0: be here. You also have your own podcast. What's it like to be on the other side of the microphone this time? It's, it's always a lot of fun to share your experience and hopefully inspire others.
2: Mm, good to hear, good to hear. So, Gero, what's the heroic story
0: behind Signavio? It all started really for the love of technology. We never really wanted to build an empire or change the world. We had just worked on a cool open source project while we were at the university, and we loved the technology so much that we wanted to keep the project alive once we leave university. And uh, we tried different avenues to fund that project. And guess what? We found the way of actually selling it to customers. So this is the company uh, Signavio starting, really as as a framework, as a container to make the commercial um, future of our open source project happen.
2: And, and that's a heroic story, right? And we all know as founders here on the table, there's also another story. So what is the real story? On Signavio?
0: No, that is actually the real story. (laughs) Uh, But the interesting piece of our story is that we developed technology first and only discovered the business problem that we were solving later. Because we were in love with web-based technology to make cloud software happen, but just for technical technical curiosity. But we only learned later that the problem that we were solving was that people through that web-based technology could collaborate at mass scale for the first time. So only over time, we really developed that narrative that carried us for a long time at Signavio to democratize business process management. But starting the company, that was actually not the goal. Okay. So you did it completely the other way around, right? Now it's
2: all about building your MVP, making assumptions, going to the market, validate that and prove that. But you built your technology and then afterwards went to the market, right?
0: Correct. The exact opposite direction.
2: (laughs) And it proved to be right, so...
0: Well, we, what carried us forward all throughout the years was the passion and the love for what we were doing, right? No matter whether we have a successful year or not so successful year, we could always come back and say, we're building great technology, we're building a really cool product that we love, and we're building it with good friends, with people we love to be around. So, you know, let's see how far it takes us. And we were very lucky because we grew 60, 70, 80, 90% every year. Um, and every year we asked ourselves, when is this going to stop? right? Because you can't grow forever. But right now we're growing at more than 100%. So uh, wow, even, even being much bigger now.
1: So 12 years ago, it doesn't sound that long ago, but it probably was a whole different market back then. Can you paint a picture what it was like uh, to be a tech entrepreneur in Berlin uh, 12 years ago?
0: Yes. So it was 2009. So the world really came out of the financial crisis. Nobody was spending money on anything. And it was kind of the nuclear winter of financing tech companies. The only things that were around here in Berlin were the Samwer Brothers and their e-commerce clone companies. Uh, where <laughs> yeah. they took American... Rocket internet. Rocket internet. Um, so that was the only thing that was around here. Very few investors, the business angels we met, they would always ask us, "Giro, show me your app. And I say, we don't have an app. It doesn't make sense for our product. And then the business angel would say, but what do I show to my friends on the golf course, right? And I say, if this is the criterion <laughs> for you, then probably we are the wrong investment. So it was a very odd situation that you didn't have role models here in Germany, companies, enterprise software companies that had grown big. You only had those established players. Mm-hmm. Um, second, the the funding environment was simply barely existing. Everybody would only do e-commerce and and uh, you know other consumer uh, topics, but enterprise software is not on the agenda. So we had this nice little club the anonymous uh, anonymous um, entrepreneurs right we would we would uh, lock ourselves away for a weekend <laughs> and tell us about all of our problems and you know suffering that we went through just to feel that we were not alone but there it, were It other... was actually
2: a club it was really yes, real club yes, coming yes. together
0: oh wow who yes. were part of the club well other founders who started at that time who all had companies between 5 and let's say 30 employees strong so really early stage companies uh, and we rented, uh, you know, houses somewhere on the countryside to, to tell us about our different problems. So that was really reassuring for us.
2: Yeah, because I can imagine, especially in those days, right? Because now if you are an entrepreneur, you can listen to great podcasts like yourself, but also of Saster and other, I think, very known sources. So you get a lot of inspiration from that. Where did you at that time get your main inspiration from, apart from these meetings with these uh, friended entrepreneurs?
0: So in terms of inspiration, so in the beginning it was really just reconfirmation that there are other stupid or crazy people out there who just do stuff. Uh, in terms of who can you learn from, there was not so much around here in Europe. That only changed in 2012, when so many people had told me, look, in Berlin, you can only start a pet project, but if you want to build a real company, you have to go to California, you have to go to San Francisco Bay Area, because this is where everything is happening. And this is what I actually did in 2012. I, uh, I booked a one-way plane ticket uh, to launch Signavio US in Sunnyvale, California. And that was very inspiring for the first time, because you had all of these great names there, these great companies, all seemingly in the same street. And the questions they were asking were very different. So at that time, we were, um, you know, low one-digit million revenue strong, um, and we felt like this super small, tiny uh, project, right? And uh, in, in in the US, at that stage, people would ask you, you know, what keeps you from making a hundred million next year? Right. And I always, the first five times that people told me that I thought, what a stupid question, right? Because it's so unrealistic. Uh, and it's not even worth thinking about, but then you, 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 the, the difference, the big difference was, you know, looking at things from the end backwards versus what I had seen here in Europe, more this is where we are today, what is the incremental improvement, the incremental step forward that we could take?
2: Yeah, they say a lot as a saying that European investors look in their back mirror, right? And American investors look at the front mirror. I think that's a big difference, right, what you're explaining.
0: Well, with the investors, I don't really know because we didn't have much exposure at that time. Um, So I felt... So it's more a cultural thing that in general people have it. With with the entrepreneurs, exactly. Uh, Because we figured in 2009, 2010, we also met potential investors, but we felt it was such a big waste of time. We felt that spending the same time um, with customers would yield a much bigger return for us and a much more sustainable return for us, helping to build a great product, helping us you know, get forward, fund things sustainably, rather than having a one-time cash injection yeah, from an indeed. investor.
1: So for, for our listeners who are not working in uh, giant companies who use SAP and use uh, business process automation on a daily basis, can you tell them what the promise was of what you were building?
0: So the promise was that we would... Democratized process improvement. So what was there before is that you have three, four, five deemed experts in any given organization who are supposed to know how the business should best run. And then the hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of employees, they just need to follow like soldiers in a war, right? If the general says life, left, then everybody goes left. But this is, you know, it can't be further from the truth because business processes, how a company functions is is much more uh, you know, much more delicate, much more complex, much much more organic than just having, here's a strategy and, and please everybody follow. But it's about bringing people on board, leveraging their ideas, but also getting their buy-in for change to move a company into a different direction. I had seen that in in many companies, like, for example, telcos, switching from a broadband provider suddenly to a TV content provider, right? A massive shift of what the company actually does, what it needs to focus on, optimize for, solve for the customer. And that's not something where the CEO says, you know, yesterday we we laid fiber in the ground and tomorrow we bring you um, you know, soccer streaming to your TV, right? But it takes a lot more than that and rallying a whole organization behind that type of change and what it means to the daily jobs of thousands of people. It's,
2: it sounds now really logical, right? I think in the time frame where we are now, but I think those years where you started, it was completely a different approach. How did you convince your first clients, you know, the big enterprises to shift and to go for this model?
0: So first of all, we convinced ourselves that this is a good idea. <laughs> <Start with that>. <laughs> <laughs> because if you're, not, if you're not convinced yourself, it's, it's very hard to, to transport that message to a customer. Yeah. But honestly, we didn't know whether we were on the right track. Maybe there are three or four experts in a given organization who know everything best, and it's the most efficient, the smartest, the best way to do that. So for us, it was uh, kind of a search, a big experimentation working with the early clients to to test out our hypotheses. And we were very lucky that we found companies who were experimenting with the same thought, who had the same type of assumptions, and who we happened to make very successful with our software. And then we could go to the next customers and say, look at this company. The day they, you know, compare the day they, they signed on to our software versus now, their share price quadrupled and their NPS grew by 25 points, right? Do you want to have the same? Then you have a much easier yeah, pitch indeed. and a much faster route into the next couple do of customers. You, do you know your
1: first big customer? Do you remember the first one you of really... Course. Which one was it? And what, what? how did you convince them to work with you guys?
0: So the first customer was a, was a health insurance company, actually the largest health insurance company in Germany called AOK, our car in German. And uh, they were there was a big consolidation wave happening at the time in health insurance. So they were separated by state, but they were merging uh, one after the other. Also big regulatory change, but also big technology change in those companies. So everything happened at the same time. It was the perfect storm to revisit how they operated. And you threw you know, 5,000 employees from this organization plus 4,000 employees from that organization plus 2,000 from here, and you all mix it around, and you need to create a new organization. So our promise to say, you know, involve your people, right? get everybody on board, all hands on deck, We build a great organization together, fit very nicely what they were trying to achieve. Plus, that company, AOK, was known as probably one of the most risk-averse, the most conservative organizations you could ever imagine. So an organization as well-known, they have a brand recognition in Germany of 99%. 0% Zero percent outside of Germany. So, for the international <laughs> listeners, if you if you think I don't even know them, uh, it's because they are only active in Germany and have no other ambitions. Um, but uh, having that as a proof point as your first customer, where it works, and this the, these mergers, these changes went into the history as the perfect example, the role model merger of how you want to do things. So, and if we're then the people who provided some of the philosophy behind that and who provided the technology to enable all of that that was a, a massive proof point for us
2: and how did you convince that risk averse health insurance company then especially from the start
0: it was just about personal connection the people who were leading those initiatives they just liked us as people and they said giro and his bunch of friends they are just good people they're smart they listen they seem to have good ideas. We trust that they can make this happen. And, um, and, and they always, um, of course, had a backup plan. If it didn't work out, they would still go with you know, the others, big established providers. But they gave us the time, the six months, the nine months, the 12 months to prove ourselves. And, uh, and they were right we delivered
2: but, but did you then had somebody who helped you to get your way in because you, at that time you were just uh, you just had your phd right from uh, from hpi uh, you worked with mckinsey briefly i think uh, after that did you had a way to get in and have the right contacts or did you approach them just via linkedin or email or whatever what
0: we knew them through previous projects so at the university we had done some co-innovation some co Uh, you know, co-creation type projects with them. This is how we knew them. This is how we had the personal connect to these people. And they then said, well, you know, these great people who we we had so much fun and, and success with in the past, we want to have more of that.
2: So a tip to uh, student uh, entrepreneurs, start networking now, right? And delivering great products to build your network there.
0: I'm one of those persons who hates networking events. <laughs> They're the I worst. I always <laughs> found that it's the biggest waste of time because it's such a spray and pray, yeah. right? Who are you going to run into? Yeah. You know, you run into 80 people and probably 75, you know, will not matter and they will not help you. And, and I've always found it super inefficient. It's really about you know, having those meaningful connects, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Is, is there a trick, is there a recipe to get to that? Mm-hmm. I don't know.
1: Mm-hmm. The German startup founders are, are quite well known that they're um, very thorough in building their first product before or building a product before they get out into the market. Well, other countries like to um, uh, fake it till they make it more or less. Uh, do you think this is true? And um, did you bluff a bit in the beginning
0: well, you always have to bluff a little bit. Um, we, we are engineers. We are four software engineers who started the company. So we always had love for technology. We always had love for the product. We didn't want to embarrass ourselves for the things that we were building. But you need to take a leap of faith. You need to be courageous at times, right? So for example, um, you know, our first customer, they called us on a Friday evening and said, well... Uh, you know, I don't know whether we talked about it, but on Monday morning, we would like to train the first 30 people. Can you please send over the training material so that we can look at it and, and are in good shape for Monday morning? Guess what? We didn't have any training material, no training plan, nothing, right? So I said, you know, sorry, I'm just on the road right now, no access to my laptop, but I'll send it to you over the course of the weekend so you can check it out. So you have 48 hours to figure out how you want to train people, uh, and how you design a program for the first two hours, eight hours, three days. Uh, and we were working day and night for this entire weekend to produce, uh, the training class, the curriculum for the stuff that we were doing. And then with, you know, de- deprived of sleep landing there on Monday morning to deliver that, right. That's, that's the type of things. Um, so you always have to cheat your way in a little bit, um, and, and just count on, believe in that you can deliver certain things. But coming completely empty-handed, this was simply not our style. No. Hey, what kept you awake those early years of Signavio? I can't really remember, to be honest. I'm, I'm a person who, who uh, forgets pain. And who has a, <laughs> I have a natural talent to focus on <laughs> All, the future. And, and that's Andy, right? As an entrepreneur also. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So All thanks to AOK.
1: <laughs> yeah, Great so, healthcare.
0: I mean, the, the beauty and why I still do this, still to this point, is that my role as a CEO, as a founder, has, has shifted every three to six months. So the stuff that you care about is vastly different. In the beginning, mostly it was product, right? Can we deliver? Do, the, do we do the right thing? Do the users adopt it? Um, you know, it does it make sense. Then over time, it's, it's more about go to market, right? What's, you know, do we have the right messaging? Do we get the right, you know, inbound funnel set up? Um, do we have the right sales strategy? Do we have the right people on the team? How do we structure it? Where do we place our bets? How fast, how late do we go into things, right? And so on and so forth. So, uh, and that was just the first three years, right? And, and, and it changes and shifts every three to six months.
2: But in general, as a person, are you awake if something arises or do you sleep well? Or how do you deal with circumstances, right? With changing and every, the, the challenges that you every day have as an entrepreneur?
0: I have a very good night's sleep. I uh, always have been able to switch off. So uh, And I sleep eight, nine hours every night. Uh, unless I need to sit on planes and have red-eyed flights. those These are the horrible weeks. But, uh, but no, um, and that has kept me alive mm-hmm. through all of the years, right? Because if you don't have those moments where you can recharge, and I every day have at least eight hours to recharge, um, that has kept me sane mm-hmm. throughout. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to the growth phase of
1: the company. You mentioned your first big client, AOK. When was the moment maybe after that that you noticed you started gaining traction with a whole range of different companies? So it wasn't a one-trick pony.
0: Only when our competitors uh, started to notice and told us so. Um, So there was this um, great party I I, I look back to or an evening, customer evening. There was a trade show called CBIT. Uh, in Hanover in Germany at the time. That was also in 2012. And uh, we sneaked into the evening event of our fiercest competitor, Software AG. And um, I said, you know, if we can't win against them in the marketplace, at least we can drink them into bankruptcy. (laughs) (laughs) So I I sat down by the bar opposite of the bartender and ordered the most expensive drinks one after the other, right, to to consume it all up. And uh, there was a person (laughs) sitting next to me um, And uh, he seemed to be doing the same thing, so I thought, great guy. <laughs> Perhaps a competitor. <laughs> <laughs> a Another great, competitor. <laughs> great guy. Let's talk. Uh, and we we really had a good conversation. 50 minutes in, I said, sorry, I didn't, didn't even introduce myself. My name is Giro. Who are you? And that young gentleman responded, I know exactly who you are. Wow. <laughs> and I said, ooh, sorry, but I you know who are you right and now do you know us and it turned out it was the CTO of our competitor oh wow and uh, oh, so far okay, yes this is this is how well we research things right so so these days you tell people to you know have all of the context available um, and uh, and we simply failed miserably at those types of things we just happy-go-lucky <laughs> went right into the customer engagements uh, anyways so this was obviously a, a wonderful opportunity to learn about ourselves mm-hmm. right and I asked so, if you know us, what do you think about us? And he said, ah, you know, this and this account, this and this company. I said, oh yeah, they just started with us. And you know, that and that account. I said, oh yeah, we're in conversations with them. And then he named all of these, these companies. And, uh, and he said, you're stealing one exciting account after the other from us, right? We really hate you. (laughs) And, um, (laughs) But then he said something very interesting. He said, But we figured that your customer base is exclusively in German speaking countries. It's an important market for us as well. But if you just leave us the rest of the world,
2: we're just. We'll be fine. happy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: what what so, was your response? So, so my, my internal reaction was, you know, no to myself. What country should we go to next? Because mm. unless people tell you that type of thing, uh, we didn't have that thought, well, we have to go somewhere else. But the next morning we sat down and this is when we made the decision to go to the U.S.
1: <laughs> Took some fills for the drinks and then made a strategy <laughs> exactly. for, to go international. <laughs> that, that was the
0: hangover uh, decision.
2: So tell us about the U.S. Was that your first foreign market? Correct. How did you prepare yourself to go to the U.S., right? Because it's a big step for your,
0: also in the step as
2: a founder also, but how do you prepare
0: yeah. yourself? So first of all, we had a couple of, a handful of customers in the United States. We had the Department of Defense as a customer, Big Logo, um, where we had to go through source code screening and all kinds of hoops to be, be allowed um, as, if, as a
2: supplier. And, and if you say, sorry to interrupt you, Gero, but if you say customer, because you, of course you launch your software also open social, right? So if you have, you have users, but you mean if you say mm-hmm. customers, actually paying customers, right?
0: Yeah, I mean yeah. paying customers. Yeah. So it was a cloud service from day one. Yeah. And you could simply sign up for a trial online and yeah. then you can swipe your credit card uh, or fill an order form and you can buy. Mm-hmm. And we had a couple of those customers where we didn't have much involvement, where we couldn't run fast enough. And they signed a small subscription with us, maybe 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 euros yeah. per year mm-hmm. um, and, and be a customer. Um, and we had a couple of really cool names like Cisco, like the DoD, like the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Wow. So a couple of cool logos <laughs> right, yeah. that we were really proud of, but we, where we hadn't done much to really win them as a customer. Very small deals. So, so that was one. So we felt like we have a couple of cool logos and references the moment we move over. Um, the second piece was of course your personal situation, because it doesn't, um, work if you just go over for two months or three months, you need to be ready to change your life. So I had this conversation with my fiance that, you know, I would go over first. She would come with me six months later, and then we stay for at least two, three, four years in the country, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, and then see how it goes. And only once it's really running, uh, that we might be able to come back. Interesting what happened in week two when I was over, because my fiance called me and she said, I'm pregnant. So <laughs> good that, timing. Was a, that was good timing. That was yeah. a shift, change in plans. <laughs> and I, my reaction was, oh, this is wonderful. And we can even have the baby in the U.S. And then the baby gets the U.S. citizenship right away and all of that. Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> and she said, no way. I give you a couple of weeks and then you come back and take care of me. Um, you come back to Berlin. So this put a, a very swift end to the, the US Europe. <laughs> <Never. your. laughs> well, I, I created a subsidiary. I hired uh, the first handful of colleagues over there. Met a lot of partners and customers. And, uh, and the, the goal was still to, to set up shop there, but then to do it remotely. And since then... Um, I I came back to the U.S. at least every month. So once a month, at least 10, 11, 12 times a year, I would fly over to the United States until Mm -hmm. Corona hit. Okay. Since then, I haven't been over there.
2: (laughs) No, and you succeeded because it's one learning that we have with founders that if you want to really build your company there, then one of the founders should go there and move there and, and build the business from the ground up, right? But you proved to do it the other way, right? Well, but
0: it was a painful path. Yeah. Um, we had a couple of customers early on
2: mm-hmm.
0: that also shaped us as a business uh, big time. Um, customers like Airbnb, who told us that process is not just about efficiency, but it's mostly about optimizing customer experience mm-hmm. at scale. Which is, you know, if you look back at the recent product additions and, and, and themes that we've released, it's all around that. Uh, And it turned out to be a shift in the market. Mm -hmm. But we discovered that in 2012 Mm -hmm. already with customers like Airbnb um, or other customers like Goldman Sachs, who uh, were on a path to to automation and rethinking themselves as a technology company. Right. They were a bank before. Now they are one of the biggest software companies you can imagine, one of the biggest digital companies you can imagine. So and we were in the midst of that. Mm -hmm. And this all started back then, 2012, 2013. As our early and, and initial customers in the U.S., but we, the rise was fast in the U.S., but then it stagnated and it was completely unpredictable. Mm-hmm. Numbers of opportunities in Germany and other countries they went through the roof, while in the U.S. it, it stayed kind of, you know, on the same level. Mm-hmm. So not until the, when we received our first investment in two thousand fifteen, we re. Booted, we restarted our US endeavors completely in 2016, and only then we could build a scalable operation with more predictable go to market and, 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 um, pipeline and revenue and all of that. <laughs>
2: but going what's, what's your take on that? Because you, you raised funding after six years, right? Also logical in the market, so you fully bootstrapped and finance your own business with clients, which is a very good prof- proof of the model. Looking back now, would, would, you do, uh, would you have done that the same or would you have accepted earlier funding or would you do it later perhaps? Or what's your view on that now?
0: Well, if there were the same quality of investors like we have them today mm-hmm. with the same level of experience and help, I probably would have taken on money earlier, mm-hmm. but we didn't have access to those or they didn't even exist, mm-hmm. um, either one. So uh, taking on a, you know, a suboptimal VC, mm. I think wouldn't have helped us. It would have forced us to burn money faster and then still have no clue. Yeah, indeed. Um, while the types of investors we have nowadays, and, and especially in SaaS, where we know how it works now, but we didn't 10 years ago. Um, This type of help that you can get through getting a VC on board is is tremendously helpful and can speed up things big time.
2: Yeah, so it's it's less important about the money, but it's more important about their experience also and their relevance for your business in the phase that you're in, right?
0: Actually, from a financial perspective, getting investors on board actually made things worse. Mm We were growing, as I said, always between 60 and 90%. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we had an EBIT margin of above 30%. Yeah, you were profitable all the oh, time, wow. right? We also. were profitable yeah. all yeah. the time. Otherwise, we wouldn't have been able to finance yeah. ourselves. Um, it lasted one year after the first funding round mm-hmm. to still be profitable. And mm-hmm. then we were unprofitable, sometimes like hell. Um, but still very
2: um, pretty capital efficient, right? Correct. I heard on a podcast, for, especially for a SaaS company also entering
0: correct. the US. Yeah. Correct. I mean, it it helped us understand what you spend your money on Mm -hmm. and be very wise. Sorry, why was it? Why was after taking on VC money, all of a sudden you
1: became unprofitable? Was it because they asked for a certain burn rate or a certain expansion rate? What
0: was the reason? The biggest difference was that prior to the first funding round, we only had junior employees. We had two or three people out of 80 who had a job experience of more than three years outside of our company. Everybody else joined us right after university. So a lot of young people, motivated, dynamic, passionate, smart, all of that, but no experience from outside. So the biggest shift was building a scalable and more experienced organization because we felt, for example, going to different markets, you can't do it in a trial and error mode all the time, but you need to have a blueprint how you go to France, how you go to the UK, how do you go to the Netherlands and so on and so forth. So, and then it starts, you hire the first person and you say, that's ridiculous. You can't pay half a million in salary to one single person. And then your investors tell you, well, that's what the market is. And that was six years ago. Um, But then you hire that person and that person will tell you, well, but I need a management team that supports (laughs) type of ambitions that we have. So you have the next couple of people who are also, you know, crazy expensive, right? And they fly business class and they go to nice hotels and everything. And then these people, they hire pros, right? And so it it, it translates very, very fast that your cost base just explodes.
1: And what was it like for you as a founder? Was it logical for you or did it also feel a bit unnatural because you started out so bootstrapped?
0: Well, from your own experience, it feels super unnatural. Yeah. But you also know that you have no clue. You don't know it better. so, And this is the piece of getting advice from the right people. You need to have trust in you know, a select number of people. And if they tell you something, uh, like in our case, for instance, the chairman that we, uh, that we got on board in 2016 was Leo Apoteca, the former CEO of SAP. And it was very easy to trust him uh, and his experience. Mm-hmm. And he would always point to so many things where he would say, "Giro." it might feel completely unnatural to you. It might feel weird. It might feel awkward. It might feel painful. Right. But out of my experience with this and this and this, um, you know, I, you know, I can recommend doing that, but it's your choice.
1: And and if you have to put it in a lesson for other founders, um, would you say you would invest earlier in in more experienced uh, personnel? Uh, would you say uh, what would your lesson be if you uh, if we talk about the, the about employees?
0: Well, following our own path, you want to have that product market fit while you're still super nimble, small, efficient, tight knit. Um, Because later, once you scale out, you have so many additional and different challenges. If you then have to fix your core product, that's going to be very tough. Um, Second piece is you want to have created a certain spirit, culture, core to the company that you can carry forward. And And you're not just any company, any organization. Because with the number of people that you hire, and especially when you grow your organization fast, and especially with very experienced people, Things will change dramatically if you don't have a core that you can come back to, that you, can, that you can identify with. It's very easy that you have a company based, you know, made out of mercenaries that might give you great performance for two years, but it's such a shaky construct that it will blow up the first time you hit the bump.
2: And how do you then, with these new senior people coming in and building a company for mainly people out of university, how do you maintain the culture then? Because that seems to me really hard. How how did you do
0: that? Well, the the, the trick number one is just be a good person. Mm -hmm. Uh, People follow the example of the founders. Um, They follow the example of senior people in the company very naturally. So even without codifying anything, Just reflecting back on that, and with everything that you do, you're a role model, so you better make an effort of doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that is probably the single most important thing. Only later on, you need to be a lot more conscious about things. Um, for example, when you start mass hiring, mm-hmm. if you want to hire, let's say, 100 people within six months, what do you actually tell them? What kind of company are they joining? What are they expected to, to grow into? Right? Then you need to have things explicit. Uh, because you want to select the right people, and you want to give a trajectory for these people, how they can fit in and how they should fit in, but uh, you can do that much later, right? Um, but you know, it's the it's you, the culture of the company. That's 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 you as the founders, those people who drive the company forward in the early stages. Mm-hmm. And the question is, how much of that do you keep, or do you? yourself become a different person, Mm. right? Suddenly you're arrogant or whatever, Mm -hmm. the moment you have that, well, the culture will shift very naturally with you.
1: Keros, when was the first time you started to think yourself about the possibility of selling the company?
0: The moment SAP reached out to us. So we signed the agreement this year in January. Mm-hmm. And SAP reached out in late October.
2: The first moment also
0: you even considered in selling the company. Well, I always rejected the thought before, right? I might've thought about it, mm-hmm. but it was never an option on the table.
2: And what was the reason for you always to reject it at that time?
0: Because we always wanted to build an independent company and continue our, you know, our own destiny. So we had already launched last year, the first IPO prepar- preparation projects. Right. Where you do, I don't know, revenue forecasting, not just for the next quarter, but for quarter plus two mm-hmm. uh, accounting, governance, you know, all kinds of things that you can start or that you should start preparing, um, you know, a couple of quarters or years before IPO. We started doing that because we thought that in 2022 or latest 2023, we would IPO the company mm-hmm. in, in order to stay independent. Yeah. And how did they reach out to you? Well, one of my one of my very good friends from university, he happens to be the chief technology officer of SAP, so he sits on the executive board. It's
1: a very good a good, good university, as, yeah, as we mentioned. mentioned Yeah, I mentioned before. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we we did a lot of strategy for SAP over beers and barbecues already previously, but it was never it never really occurred to me that we would become part of that organization um, in the future. So he reached out and he said, Gira, I know exactly that you don't want to sell the company, right? And it might sound very strange to you, but we would like to start the dialogue of whether you become part of SAP. And and I told him, look, this is not what we want to do, right? And he said, Gira, please, can we set up a workshop? Uh, I want to introduce you to a couple of really cool people here at SAP who care a lot about this topic. And we have some exciting ambitions ourselves in that area. Can we please talk Hmm. Uh, and then I said okay right because because you're my friend (laughs) (laughs) that's why he called you (laughs) I can I can I can do you that favor but uh, but it might still be that we just bluntly say it's not an option for us yeah and he said that's fair Um, so um, let's meet next week or as soon as you can make it
1: and how did that meeting that that first meeting went
0: well so first of, of all it was about us understanding what they had planned Because what we always wanted to avoid is join a large organization and you're product number 47, right? And especially when you join as small as we were at the time, um, in a company that has, you know, tens of billions in revenue, you know, if you not at least have a billion in revenue, you're just insignificant for that company, right? And you will die a slow death of insignificance within that larger setting. And this is what we always wanted to avoid. So it was important for us to understand the strategic direction that they were going through or going into. The reassuring thing was that SAP knew us very well. They had been a customer since 2014, one of our biggest customers. And the gentleman who had introduced our software at SAP to solve a lot of their on-prem to cloud Uh, shift, Mm -hmm. uh, but also to digest some of the big acquisitions that they did and so on and so forth. This is what our software was used for. Um, This gentleman who was head of process management in 2014 had become the sole CEO of SAP, Christian Klein. So there was connect and understanding and mutual respect on many different levels in the organization. So it didn't feel awkward to have that conversation with Mm -hmm. SAP. It still feels awkward in general uh, to leave the state of independence.
2: So at that time you had a discussion with SAP. Did you also consider other options at that moment?
0: It was funny because we had five different options on the table at the same time. We knew we had to, wanted to raise some additional money, Mm -hmm. but we didn't know through which mechanism. We had, um, you know, Series D equity investing conversations, we had loan, term sheets for loans on the table, mm-hmm. unsecured, ridiculously low interest rates. So also, which was something that simply didn't exist six or 12 months Indeed. prior. Yeah. Um, then we were in discussions with a spec, something mm-hmm. new that yeah. that came up on the agenda and, and where we started to receive inbound interest. Mm-hmm. Um, and another strategic who also reached out to us one week prior to SAP, who said, we would like to entertain a conversation. Mm-hmm. So it was very fascinating that all of these things happened seemingly within a matter of weeks. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But it also felt great because we could really make up our, our minds. Mm-hmm. What is the path forward? So it was not a lack of choices that we had, but it was an abundance of choices and really being able to, to make the best choice for our product, for our topic, for our employees, for us as founders, um, To um, Yeah. to paint the best possible future.
2: So at that time, you had different options, right? Debt, uh, equity, and other strategic, et cetera. Uh, You had indeed SAP reaching out to you. What did you do at that time? Also as a founder, did you hire an investment banker to help you? Did you ask for your chairman, the previous uh, SAP uh, board member? What did you do as a founder at that
0: moment? So we didn't hire... uh, an, an advisor, um, my CFO, he loved transactions. This is what he lived for, right? Uh, when I had told him about the Serious C fundraise, he said, "Gero, finally a transaction <laughs> again! I love transactions." <laughs> he was so, having a good time
1: of uh, his life.
0: Yeah. So you know him. He, you know, in this very short period of time with us, um, he, he stayed for two and a half years in total. Um, we had the serious C financing plus the acquisition by SAP, so that was um, you know heaven, for yeah. him paradise. <laughs> Um, so he loved that, but, um, no, the, the, first people I reached out to were my investors. Apex who were the lead investors, mm-hmm. um, at that time. Poteka had actually left already as a chairman. Okay. So we had a new chairman or, who came through, um, through the Apex investment mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Great gentleman. Um, and, uh, but the investors were the first ones to discuss with. They had only come on board, uh, 15 months prior. Yeah. But we already had such a great relationship with them, um, very intimate. We had worked together very closely. They understood us, our space, uh, the organization, everything. So they were the perfect Sparings partners, plus, of course, my co-founders, mm-hmm. plus, of course, our C-level team. So this was a, about the you know, eight, nine people involved in that very early discussion.
2: yeah. And did you then, because I can imagine right with the two strategic you're talking to, and there's an opportunity in the market, did you also reach out to other parties at that moment, or did you just go for the parties, the options you had on the table at that moment?
0: Well, we very um, loosely, you know, tested the waters, mm-hmm. because we had two, three other, you know, if we were to go down the path of a strategic acquisition, there were two, three other obvious candidates mm. um, who were also in the mix, in the game, but we didn't, because we didn't have that warm relationship, Mm -hmm. um, where we already had a dialogue of some sort around partnerships or whatever going on, we didn't, we, we couldn't warm it up fast enough. So that was, that was a a pretty much a dead end. And we felt that they might be able to, they might submit a term sheet, but it's not really a thought through kind of joint future thing, but it's only about you know, here's a commercials one versus commercials two. Mm -hmm. And it became obvious very clearly that if we wanted to go for a strategic acquisition, uh, SAP would be the the only one we would actually seriously Mm -hmm. consider. Mm -hmm. And that also was an important argument to think about that seriously, because we knew that if this acquisition wouldn't happen, they would have to make other strategic choices, do alternative acquisitions or do... Heavy you know in-house investments mm-hmm. into uh, specific areas, so the door with s a p would have been shut for at least two, three, four, five years mm-hmm. um and we know that the, the the match will never be better with any other company um so either you do it now or you do it never. Mm-hmm. so when you
1: start these talks, it's always a bit of a dance, right? You go into strategic conversations and you uh, point out a vision, and at one point it's also time to talk numbers, correct, so who did? the first offer or a ballpark figure? And um, what was that like? Because these were enormous amounts of money, of course.
0: Yes. So we gave them, I gave them a hint. I told them, look, we are under no pressure to make this happen. The last investment round was just 15 months ago, right? So the valuation we will talk about might have nothing to do with fundamentals, but it might simply serve the purpose for the last investor to make their you know, X times the investment. That might be the only determining factor for the purchase price. Do you accept that? And, uh, and of course everybody nods because they don't want to shut down <laughs> <the> conversations prematurely. <laughs> uh, and then I even floated a number and said, you know, if you go anywhere near this or below this, we don't even need to start talking. Okay. So I set kind of an absolute lower boundary to say, I will not even talk to my investors, Mm -hmm. right, if we get anywhere near the territory, because I I know they will just, you know, shut the door in front of me and and tell me I'm crazy.
2: And when was it in time that you put this ballpark figure on the table? That
0: was in the first conversation. First conversation with a CTO reaching out to you, etc. Correct. Yeah. Okay. We said, let's not waste time. Mm -hmm. We all like each other and we trust each other. Let's not do something, let's not pursue something that we know we will not be able to make mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. So I floated that number. Uh, for some reason, that number got lost because the first offer that SAP eventually made was below that. Mm-hmm. So And, and I, I I called them like three minutes after I got the first <laughs> offer. I said, didn't you listen? Right? I told you something, right? I I, I feel bad mm-hmm. even receiving this from you, right? Because it's, I feel like you haven't. Hurt me. Yeah, I'm not mad. I'm
1: disappointed,
0: <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I can't even. You know, I will delete this right away to 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 remove completely ignore this. <laughs> <laughs> you can have a second chance. <laughs> let's ignore this one. So so yeah, but but um, <laughs> you know, just just to hmm. talk a little bit about the magnitude that we're talking here. So between let's say the highest bid or ask and the lowest and the highest was a factor of three. Wow wow. Okay so you know, when, when, you know, SAP floated a number and then they said, okay, but you know, now we're entering a discussion here. Mm. What's your counter proposal? Yeah, We just returned three times the number. Yeah.
2: So it was really insulting
0: also for you, right? This offer they made first. Yeah. It was not insulting. No. It, it was big money. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but on the end, but, but, ah, but, yeah. but it was, you know,
1: I, I, just, just as a personal question for you, what's it like to ask for these kinds of valuation? Because kind of feels like monopoly money at one point. The money doesn't,
0: doesn't the money doesn't matter. Right? Because if you look at it, at least for us as founders, it really doesn't matter because the the amounts are so ridiculously high that it doesn't make any difference to you. Right? So I always said, you know, if the amount of money I need in order not to have to work any more in my life is 5 million euros. Okay? Then from money-making money, this will be sufficient to, to have a decent life until the very end of my life. I will never have, be forced to work anymore. And then you talk about numbers that are, that are you know, much higher, much, much higher, right? And, um, and so it doesn't really matter. It's more of a high score, right? It's a high score in the sense of, okay, so you will make a transaction like this once, where do you want to land, right? It's like you, have, you qualify for the Olympics once, you better, you better win a medal, right? It's the same type of thing. You will be a great athlete no matter what, but you want to win that medal, right? So that, that's, that's the, high sc- the high score notion to it. But of course, the money matters big time to the investors, right? Because they need to return something to their fund. And if it's not high enough, they will simply not buy into this. So that's why for the following commercial discussion um, with SAP, on from our end, the complete conversation was led... Deliberately led by our investors, and I gladly handed it to them. Um, also, you know, good cop, bad cop type of distribution of work. But uh, honestly, I couldn't have cared less. But for the investors, it was hugely important what they would be able to return.
2: And that was after the first offer they they made to you that you handed over to to the, the investors. Yeah, so yeah. so
0: the offers always came to me, yeah. right? But I but I dispatched it always right away. Indeed. And the and the money conversations were always done by the investors, not by myself.
2: Why did you choose to do that?
0: What do you mean to hand over the responsibility Indeed. to them? Because we didn't care. We wanted we wanted on the one hand a great outlook um, for the joint future under the s and umbrella. So we cared a lot about many other things. Would they guarantee that all of all employees would would retain their jobs? Mm-hmm what would be the position within the company what is the strategic you know narrative and positioning within that what's mm-hmm. what's the outlook this was these were the things who would we work with yeah. out- was
1: was it important for you to keep the brand alive
0: was it one of the well so this is something that you can only control so much yeah. um because you have for these types of companies you have a big brand architecture that you don't have much control over right for example sap acquired hybris and killed the brand SAP acquired SuccessFactors and they still have the brand. Will they have the SuccessFactors brand forever? Who knows, right? The brand architecture might change over time. So, you know, Hybris brand got killed and they were bigger than we were at the point of of acquisition. Can you really realistically claim and demand that your brand stays? You can't, right? And you never know whether it's even the wisest choice. Can you take us to the day of signing? What was it like for you? It was a corona lockdown day in Munich. (laughs) I felt free as a bird because at the time you could only go to um, hotels if you had a business reason to do so. and uh, You had a reason. (laughs) You had a reason, yeah. (laughs) And restaurants and bars were all closed except for the restaurants and bars in hotels serving the hotel guests. So the night prior to the signing... We sat in this beautiful bar on top of Munich. It was 30 centimeters of fresh snow that night. Mm, So the whole city was covered in white. We were seemingly the only people around having the whole bar for ourselves, very cozy, sitting next to the fireplace, looking out on snowy Munich and and, and enjoying something that we hadn't enjoyed for three or four months uh, because it was lockdown to have great food and have great drinks in a great hotel so that was the night prior to signing <laughs> <laughs>
2: hey, and how did you how did you feel at that time especially before you uh, uh, closed the deal
0: because it's it's selling your baby right i think you you yeah the D- decisions had been made before that right so as i said we started end of october and then it took 6 weeks to go through business diligence mm mm-hmm. And commercial negotiation mm-hmm. uh, to get to the um, LOI, it was called the term sheet, uh, which laid out all of the commercial details of the deal. So that ha- the the, the that, that term sheet was signed at beginning of December. Um, so that was the much bigger moment, honestly, because you had to make the choice: do you commit to that deal or not? Right? Yeah. And. Um, you know, I, I still remember sitting there on my DocuSign, right. With, with shaky fingers, um, because that was the much bigger choice to make. Do we have a deal on the table? And do we have an outlook at SAP that we all look forward to or not? And then the next six weeks were really just executing it out. So the commercial, none of the commercials changed. Um, but it was about all of the legal stuff. So the, the lawyers were busy as hell. We had hundreds and hundreds of people involved in the transaction. It was yeah. crazy.
1: And, and SAP is, of course, a publicly traded company. Uh, I think these deals can't be disclosed before it's publicly announced. How did you keep it a secret
0: with so many people working on it? Well, we couldn't. Um, and the news broke three days prior to Signature. And you could read it on Bloomberg uh, that the deal was about to happen. So, What do you think? Well, that was, th- that, was, that was horrible because inside of our companies, probably only 15 people knew about it. And suddenly you have it out in the news and everybody wants to know what is going on, right? And you can't confirm nor deny. So how did you, how did you find out it was out in the open? Did your phone blew up? Because Bloomberg called us, they need to have two verifications before they can break the story. So they have an anonymous source or, or whatever source they have. Plus they need to have two sources to confirm. And my phone rang like crazy because all kinds of people told me that the journalists had reached out to them Mm -hmm. to get a confirmation for the deal, right? (laughs) Many people like former M&A advisors, uh, law firms who were not not involved in the deal, you know, who all played nice and saying, we don't know about any deal, Mm -hmm. but then they would call me and say you know, the journalists are calling me like crazy because Mm -hmm. they feel that there's a deal up in the air. I just wanted to let you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So we tried to, to keep everything quiet and convince everybody who was close to the matter not to say anything, because we were still hoping that Bloomberg wouldn't break it. But then they... They found two sources. and they, Well, yeah. obviously, they found two people who yeah. were happy to confirm that, that this was going on. Yeah. Did you hunt them down? Well, we don't know. <laughs> we, don't, we, <laughs> we, we, we don't know who it was. Um, but that was obviously big news, uh, and especially for our own team, mm. right? Because... This creates a lot of uncertainty. We had all of this great communication plan laid out that, you know, here's the signature, here's the all hands call, here's the material, here's the Q and A document, here's everything laid out, right? We had it all very well prepared um, for that day. But if it comes a couple of days early, suddenly you're suddenly you're in a mess, and you need to bridge that time.
2: Yeah, and you cannot communicate it the way that you wanted to communicate,
0: right? Yeah. You, well, everything all you can say is, "Look, we would never do anything no, that harms the company yeah. or that is bad for our team." Or
1: was there one point you thought that maybe it could hurt the deal even because there was this big known uh, fact that uh, at one point uh, Beats was selling to to Apple mm-hmm. and um, uh, Dr. Dre one of the founders uh, made a video while drunk saying no. that, that, that he was going to be a billionaire because of his company. And in the Netflix documentary, his co-founder Jimmy Iovine was like, Oh God, this is going to hurt her deal. Tremendously. No,
0: everybody was so committed to getting the deal done. Um, and it was close enough to the signature mm-hmm. that it didn't harm things. Um, it put SAP also in a bad spot because they're a publicly traded company and they're certain, you know, regulations and so about what they can communicate, what they cannot communicate uh, to the stock market and so on. So, um, no, that didn't hurt. The thing that that made us worry about the deal happened actually much earlier uh, because SAP had a massive stock dip by 20% in November, right in the middle when we had the commercial discussions, right? If you have a company losing 20% of their market cap, you know, we were deeply worried that SAP would pull out of things immediately, but they didn't. They said it's just a, it, it's most likely going to be a temporary dip. Um, fundamentals look great. We don't change course. Wow, what a story. <laughs> <God>.
1: <laughs> Tremendous story, <laughs> really.
0: You oh. should make a documentary. One more question. What did you buy for yourself as a present? Um, did I buy anything? Well, I opened, I'm, I love whiskey, Scotch whiskey. And one of the, the bottles that I paid a lot of money for, I actually brought a signing and we opened it and and finished it that night. So that was that was probably the first uh, piece of craziness. Um, but no I'm I'm not that type of person who goes out and needs to you know have material things to hmm. prove that you did something. No.
2: And last question for me, how's your role now as a CEO what what did change after the acquisition of SAP?
0: So we have a lot of so the organizational setup is we formed a new line of business with an SAP um, so next to S4 and success factors and so on, we have our own little uh, line of business called Business Process Intelligence. We merged with a couple of teams that were already there at SAP. So we uh, we got an additional 100, 150 colleagues on board um, and we grew massively ever since. Um, and I'm one of the two co-leads, co-heads of that unit. My dear colleague and CME's t- twin is Ruven. Mm-hmm. He's at SAP for 17 years, knows it all, super great guy, access to everything, knows exactly what buttons to push, uh, you know, what what fight to fight and what mm-hmm. consensus to reach. Um, so uh, we're a tag team, um, you know, a great, great setup mm-hmm. uh, to thrive within the new setting at SAP. I always tell people, and and it's the truth, is that we now have more freedom than before. Uh, Before, for example, you would always have these discussions of, you know, why should we invest into 10 or 15 or 20 more engineers, right, to build out the product? And then you say, well, but three years, four years down the line, we really need to have taken a different step. And then you have this discussion of... What time frame are we actually optimizing for, right? Are we optimizing for the next 12 months or for the next five years, right? Those types of questions you have with investors, which are great and, and, and important at SAP, you know, timeline means you always work for the long run, right? So the question is, how do you get to that half a billion, billion in revenue as fast as possible? Mm-hmm. And and what are the types of choices we need and investments we need to do today mm-hmm. on that journey? So when we joined um, SAP in March, we had around 150 people in engineering. Now we have 400, wow. which shows the level of investment and importance SAP gives to building great products. And this is something that, you, that we probably wouldn't have seen with, with even the most um, you know, positive and optimistic investors. Well,
1: the colleague of Johan who wrote the valuation estimate really went all the way and almost made a complete book out of it. (laughs) So, So let's summarize.
3: Signavio is acquired by SAP, one of world's largest enterprise software conglomerates in January 2021. SAP has significant penetration in the enterprise software space and possesses a huge volume of rich process data generated by its ERP system. While SAP has the data, it lacked the capability to effectively utilize it and deliver process intelligence and actionable insights. SAP recently launched a dedicated business process intelligence unit where Signavia's process mining capability is the missing piece in their portfolio. The purchase price was not disclosed, but a Bloomberg report speculates a stunning valuation of 1.2 billion at the time of acquisition. In January 2021, Signavio's revenue was estimated to be 100 million, servicing over 1 million users in 2,000 organizations worldwide. In total, the business raised 230 million in funding. The last funding round was in July 2019, one and a half years before the acquisition. At that time, Apex Digital, a U.S. growth equity And buyout investor invested 177 million in a Series C round. Apex Digital is known for their minority investments. Research by TechCrunch shows the average stake for a Series C round to be 17%. For Signavio, this came to a valuation of 1 billion in 2019. One and a half years later, taking into account the pandemic, and the discount for the dependency on SAP as Signavio's biggest client, a valuation of 1.2 billion early 2021 would be no surprise. Taking another approach by looking at competition, we identified Munich-based Salonis as a frontrunner in this market. Forbes publishes that Salonist reached 100 million in ARR with 2x growth a few months before raising capital at a 2.5 billion valuation. January 2021, at the time of acquisition, Signavio was generating 100 million ARR, just as Salonis did back in 2019. There's no information on growth numbers, but Apex Digital publishes the following. Signavio has achieved high growth while delivering its innovative business transformation suite to over 1 million users worldwide. Assuming Signavio grows with equal speed suggests a significantly higher valuation. Lastly, let's check these numbers using the ARR multiple approach. At the time of acquisition, Signavia was generating 100 million ARR. Research by Blossom Street Ventures in 2021 shows the average ARR multiple for B2B software companies with an above 100 million ARR to be 14x. We all know Americans are a bit crazier with valuations than we are here back in Europe, but let's say we use a multiple of 12x. Taking this approach comes as close to the 1.2 billion speculated by Bloomberg. All in all, we would say the valuation of Signavio would be at least the 1.2 billion suggested by Bloomberg. So Gero, are we under or overestimating the sales price of Signavio?
0: Well, the valuation is in the right ballpark. The revenue was actually slightly overestimated Mm, at that point. Very good.
1: Gero, thank you so much for inviting us here in Berlin to your office and talking uh, for over an hour with you about your wonderful company. You really did a tremendous job with all of your colleagues. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Big Exit Show. We hope you enjoyed today's program. If you did, please subscribe to our show at Spotify or at your favorite podcast platform. And if you have any feedback, please send a message to podcast at peak.capital. My name is Amy Gieling. And I'm Johan van Mil. Thanks again for listening. And we hope you join us at the next episode.